hey, today is a, I, I guess, good day, but for me, a little bit of a sad day. Uh, today, we finish up this Uphill series, uh, and I have really enjoyed working through First Peter. Uh, I, I've never really gone through it like this. I, I've read through it numerous times. Uh, when I was in uh, camp, summer camp one year, we did Bible quizzing. And we did First Peter's, but just chapters 1 and 2. Uh, this is my first time ever to go chapters 1 through 5. And, and so I've really enjoyed it. I have just personally gotten a lot through it. And I, I hope that some of you have really grown through it, been challenged by it, and, and really have sensed God speaking to you. As we've been looking at this idea of suffering and, and how God wants us to keep going through life. How there's this uphill climb each of us is making and how God is working in the midst of it. Um, but today, we finish it up. We're going to be in First Peter chapter 5. So if you brought a Bible, uh, open it up. Uh, I don't care if it's paper or digital. Go ahead and open it up. If you do not own a Bible, please stop back at our uh, Give and Grow table. We've got uh, two different translations back there. We would love to give you one of those, to find the one that would fit you best. And we ask that if you take one, that you make it your everyday Bible. We, we just want to see people learning from the Scriptures regularly because we think God can still speak through it today. So as we get ready uh, to do this, I'm going to read the, entire, uh, the entirety of 1 Peter 5. So it's kind of a lot, but stick with me. We're going to do verses 1 through 14. Let me read. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And so, Father, as we come one last time here to the book of First Peter, I pray that you would be our teacher today, that you would take these words that Peter wrote so long ago to encourage a church, and that you would in turn use it and encourage us to continue this climb towards Christ-likeness, and that you would open our eyes to what you want to have us to, to see. And that you'd help us to do the difficult thing that's necessary to do this. So, Father, we just open our hearts and our minds to what you want to say to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever noticed how most things in life are just straightforward? 
For instance, you're driving your car, you turn the steering wheel to the right, your car will go to the right. You walk into a room, you flip on the light switch, the lights come on. Most things in life, you just do and they just happen. The most obvious one is that when you give your wife flowers, you get out of the doghouse. I mean, these are just common sense. They, they just work, right? Okay, I'm not getting much affirmation on that last one. <laughs> but every once in a while, you come across something that it's counterintuitive. It's the opposite of what you would expect. Uh, for instance, have you ever heard the maxim, less is more? Yeah, I see some head nods. I, I remember when I was working as a lifeguard, Oh, one year. Uh, and I, was, I worked as a lifeguard for five years, and I was the assistant manager for two. And our pool at that time was the second largest pool in Iowa, the largest outdoor pool. This was in Shenandoah, Iowa. And our pool held about a million gallons of water. All right? It was about 40 yards across. Our deep end was 13 foot deep. It had four diving boards. And in order to go off the diving boards, you had to prove that you were a strong enough swimmer to make the 40-yard swim across the pool. Well, to make sure that they couldn't just lie and say, oh, yeah, I did it for someone, you had to do it for one of the two assistant managers. Well, that was either Matt or myself. And so one day, this little, I don't know, six, seven-year-old kid walks up, and he wants to go off the diving board, so he asks if he could do the swim test. So I walk out there with him and his little friends, and this kid jumps in the pool, and he starts going across. And about one quarter of the way, I realize this isn't going very well. And about halfway I realize he is working his butt off, and he's not getting anywhere. Like, he's basically treading water. And I just stand there and realize, I have to get in the water now. And so I just take my glasses off, I hand them to one of his little friends, and I dive in, and I come up next to him. And this kid is working so hard. I mean, he's, he's just splashing and going. But basically, as every stroke he was taking, he was pushing as much water as he was pulling. So he's basically just staying put. And I just wanted to say, like, hey, do a little less. Like, if you would do less work, you'd actually accomplish more. You'd actually move through the water. Because sometimes less is more. Or, or how about this one? Any of you ever heard to borrow something from your enemy? If you borrow something from your enemy, you turn him into a friend. It, just this week, I read a story about a guy who did not get along with his landlord. He felt like his landlord, she just really hated him. And they would text, you know, about different things. And she was rude, crude. Texts were just cut short. Even in person, it wasn't very good. And then he heard this idea, borrow something from your enemy. So he thought, well, I'm going on vacation. I'm going to ask to borrow her professional scuba gear. And I'm thinking, there's no way I would ask for something like that. Expensive equipment. But he went for it. And to his shock, she said yes. And when he went over to pick it up, she's all excited to show him, okay, make sure you do this, you got to do this, you know, this is what this does. And she's showing him all this stuff. He takes it and ends up buying her a thank you present, brings it back, and gives it to her. After that, he said her texts had smiley faces and little hearts. I mean, like, she was suddenly very nice in person. He saw his enemy turn into a friend simply because he asked to borrow something. It doesn't make sense. It goes against what you would expect. It's counterintuitive. Well, what we just read from 1 Peter, you may not realize, but it's also counterintuitive. There's basically something that Peter has just said in this for us to do, but it's not natural. It's not what we want to do. We've been running through this entire series with this John Maxwell quote, that everything worthwhile is uphill. And we saw how, you know, if it's losing weight or getting in shape or, you know, getting a degree, you know, there's all these things we want. It's uphill, but it takes work to get there. 
But John also pointed out that while we all have uphill desires, we have downhill habits. We will give in, you know, like, I want to lose weight, but man, ice cream looks so good. The same goes spiritually. I believe that God wants to form the image of Jesus in each of us. That's the uphill. But there's these downhill pressures, these things that try to drag us back downwards, whether it be our own temptation to sin or other spiritual persecution. And Peter is writing to a group of people who are being spiritually persecuted. And so Peter's fear is that they're going to give in. They're going to slide back down. They won't keep the climb uphill. That's why he wrote this letter. And as he's coming to the end, it's, it's almost like he's saying, all right, I've told you how to handle suffering. I, I've been talking about this culture of honor. I, I've been talking about all these things. Let me just give you one more way up the hill. And it's counterintuitive. The path to the top, Peter shows, goes through the lowlands. It goes through the valley. In order to go up, you sometimes have to go low. In order to become like Christ, you have to be humble. It's counterintuitive. Often we think of the, the greatest as these great achievers, and it's all about me. And Peter's saying, no. You want to be like Christ, you have to put others first. And the way he goes about teaching this counterintuitive path is he talks to two groups of people. He first talks to pastors, and then he talks to Jesus followers. So the first four verses are to pastors. So let's just take a peek at them. You notice there in verse 1, he uses the word elder. Now, in a lot of church circles, the word elder is interchangeable with pastor or overseer. And, and even in the scriptures, you can see that. But this time, in the Greek, the word is actually referring to those who are older. Kind of the traditional sense of the word elder. So I thought, well, maybe he's just writing to, you know, the older people in the congregation. But notice what he says to them in verse 2. He tells these elders to shepherd the flock. You see, he's telling them, even though you're older, you've got to lead. You've got to help. You've got to care. You have to shepherd. Now, a shepherd back in biblical times, some of them weren't exactly respected. Uh, it, there were some shepherds that were quite wealthy. You know, your sheep were your, your uh, you know, income. You could sell the wool. You'd have the meat. You know, you, you'd get quite a sizable flock. You were wealthy. But when you got that big, you couldn't go out and care for all the sheep yourself. So you would hire some people to be the shepherds out in the field. Those are the guys that gave the word shepherd a bad reputation. These are the guys who, they hung out with sheep. And so they were kind of socially awkward. They're out, you know, in the wilderness, and so their clothes aren't exactly staying in, in tip-top shape. Uh, they just were the fringe of society. And yet, it surprised people when Jesus comes along and starts describing his role. And one of the terms that he takes on is the term shepherd. Because you see, when a shepherd is out in the field, the shepherd is not there for what he can get from the sheep. He's there for what he can give to the sheep. And that's what Jesus did for us. Jesus himself said that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. That's what a good shepherd does. A good shepherd will lead his sheep to find the grass that can provide the nourishment they need. A good shepherd will help protect them from wolves that would come in and want to attack them. A good shepherd will see a sick sheep and help to remove it so that it can get healthy but not infect the others. 
A good shepherd is always focused on the sheep. That means this shepherd has to humble himself for the needs of the flock. And so he says to these elders, shepherd the flock, care for them, serve them, humble yourself. In fact, he tells these shepherds three things not to do, not to do. The the first one he says there is that as they exercise oversight, as they provide leadership, they are not to do it under compulsion. They're supposed to do it willingly. I unfortunately know a pastor right now who is nearing retirement, and for basically the last, I don't know, four or five years, he's just gone into the office, worked on his message, and then Sunday morning walks in and preaches the sermon, and he's done. And he basically lets the associate pastor do everything else. His heart is not in it. He has no love for his church. He's just hanging on till he can retire and start drawing his retirement benefits. I feel so sad for his church because the call to pastor, to lead, it's from God. It's a responsibility. And so that's why Peter says, hey, if you're going to shepherd these people, don't do it out of compulsion. God's not twisting your arm into it. Do it willingly. Shepherd them, love them. And the second thing he says to them is not to shepherd them in a way for shameful gain. Not to do it for shameful gain. Uh, there's, there was a, a megachurch pastor just, oh man, I don't know, three, four years ago. Uh, it, he released a book. Uh, a lot of these guys, you know, they pastor these churches of 10,000 or more. And, and as they, you know, create this content to teach on Sundays, they sometimes will take it and kind of package it in a book. You know, they'll have editors help them and they release a book because, hey, if it helped their church family, maybe it'll help some others. And I've read a number of these guys' books and some of them have been really, really helpful to my own spiritual journey. So I'm grateful for some of these guys. But in this one particular instance, guy wrote a book, and his church bought a number of copies. And that's not strange, because oftentimes, you know, they'll give them away or use them for like a sermon series. But in this case, they bought so many that it actually put the book on the New York Times bestseller list when it was released. And then it sold more than expected because it hit the New York Times bestseller list. Now everyone notices it. What's this book? And so a bunch more people went to buy it. And he made a boatload of money off of it. And this bothered a lot of people. They felt that he was doing this for shameful gain. Because by having his own church buy so many thousands or tens of thousands of copies, it put it up on the bestseller list and he made more money. It seemed like it was for shameful gain. And it actually created issues and problems within the church that that guy is no longer the pastor of that church. So pastors are not to uh, do it out of compulsion, they're not to do it for shameful gain. And there's one more. He says, it, it's uh, right there in um, uh, verse 3. Not to be domineering. Not to be domineering. It, there are many pastors, especially church planters, they, they kind of have a vision for where they want to go. I, I had the chance this week to hang out with some church planters. Uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun. But I, I sat there and looked at these guys going, Wow. These guys are so gifted. You just, you just can see it in them. You know, a lot of these people that run in church circles, like Aaron Berg just doesn't fit that profile. Like I don't have a flannel shirt and a cool beard. You know, but there's other things too. And you see some of these guys and you just realize, whoa, these guys are so gifted for this. But what happens is they get going after their vision and they begin to use the people to accomplish it. They begin to, in a sense, domineer over the family. And Paul's saying, I'm Peter's saying, no, they're not there for your mission. 
Your mission is for them. The, the mission at Riverwood is to help people find and follow Jesus. We cannot accomplish our mission of reaching 10% of the spiritually disconnected unless all of us are on that mission together. And, and so that's where it can't be me and Jeff trying to use you to accomplish our mission. It's to release you to go and accomplish the mission that God has for you. And so it has to be about what God is wanting to do. The great thing about Riverwood is that I didn't want to do this. I was happy where I was. I was content. This whole thing came from God. And so I figure, hey, if God's the one who started this, this must be his church. And so it's not Aaron's church. It's not Jeff's church. This is Christ's church. Which means Jeff and I need you to do something. If you ever see either of us beginning to use the church for our own shameful gain, if you ever feel like we're doing this just kind of out of compulsion, if you ever get a sense that we're trying to domineer and use people for our own purposes, would you just lovingly come up and say, hey, let's catch breakfast. Let's go do lunch. And you sit down and you'll say, how you doing? And we'll probably say, good, doing great, doing fine. And you can then look at us and say, are you sure? Because. And then you just lovingly with grace begin to share what you begin to see. Because this church is too important for me and Jeff to make it about us. This is about Christ. Now, please, don't go and create little political factions. Don't, don't you know, try and get people over to your cause. No, just come to us and talk to us. Because the mission's too important. The, God at any moment could take me out. You know, he could, he could remove Jeff. And yet the mission that he's given us has to continue. And so it isn't about us. It's about Christ. And so if you see us veering from that, would you just lovingly say, hey, you're not being a great shepherd right now. Because notice what Peter says. He says that there in verse 3 at the end, he says that they are to be examples to the flock. In, in other words, these shepherds, they're not really shepherds. They're really lead sheep. They're supposed to be following the chief shepherd, Jesus. Because then as they follow the chief shepherd, the rest of the sheep will say, oh, hey, there goes the lead sheep. We better go where he goes because he seems to know where the best grass is. And they'll follow along. And so really, this is about just the pastors not being in charge, not having all the power and control. It's about them just humbling themselves and realizing, I follow Jesus, and I'm just to help guide the rest of the church to do the same. Now, here's where the counterintuitive part comes in. Notice what he says in uh, verse 4. That then, when the chief shepherd appears, you, these pastors, these elders, will receive the unfading crown of glory. By going low, putting the needs of the flock first, God then exalts them, lifts them high, and he gives them this unfading crown of glory. It's God saying to these pastors, well done, good and faithful servant, because you realize they weren't your people, they were my people. Thank you for loving them and caring for them like I've called you to. You didn't do it out of compulsion. You didn't do it in a domineering way. You, in a sense, just brought them to the chief shepherd. That's what pastors to do. But he doesn't just talk to pastors. He also talks to Jesus followers. And it starts right in verse 5. The very first word is likewise. Likewise. In other words, the things that he just said to pastors, much of that applies also to those, and in this case, he says, to those of you who are younger. Now, in this case, he's probably writing to a church where the pastors were kind of older, and so he is writing to the younger people. But 
I, I think this just goes for anyone who says, yes, I follow Jesus. Yes, I'm part of a church. And the first thing he says is to be subject to the elders, to humble yourself underneath the pastors. There are times, I'm sure, where I will do something or Jeff will do something that will drive you nuts. You know, my jokes aren't that funny. And you'll just kind of roll your eyes and go, oh, Aaron, nice try, but that failed again. You know, and you'll just, you know, inside wish these things. And yet part of your spiritual growth is to humble yourself, even under my pathetic jokes. It's this humility this part of your growth. But notice, it's not just being subject to your leaders. He continues on, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. And, and who's this humility toward? Toward one another. It's not just a humility and a humbleness before your leaders. It's a humility and a humbleness with each other. It's humbling yourself, taking the low road, and considering the needs of others before your own. You put others first. But have you noticed that that's easier said than done? I, I, I will just confess, when I wake up in the morning, the very first person on my mind is me. Usually it's, I want to be back asleep. Uh, but it, it also can be, oh man, my body hurts. I'm getting older. I don't like this. Or, or I th- start thinking about my schedule. Or I, th- I think about, you know, all that I have going on. What's my to-do list? I, I'm thinking about me. Well, likewise, Some people will walk into a church with the same mindset. They'll walk into a church family, into a worship service, and they'll have a me-centered attitude about it. I want the music a certain way. I want the message to be only so long. I want these sort of things. And when we don't get it my way, you usually just up and leave. You see, if we're going to have unity, we are not going to be able to have a me-centered approach to church. We have to have a Jesus-centered approach and to be others-focused. We humble ourselves. Because if we don't, if we walk in with a me-centered approach, that right there begins to put in the cracks that now Satan can come in and begin to try and widen and divide that and get the thing to crumble apart. Have you noticed how we don't like talking about Satan? If you were to uh, look at surveys, You'll see that a number of Americans would say, yes, I believe in a God. But if you say, do you believe in Satan, the number is way lower. We, we don't like talking about it. it. It just seems, I don't know, unscientific, uneducated. It seems like out of mythology, voodoo stuff. You know, nah, we're, we're above that. But Peter doesn't seem to have any problem talking about it. If you look over at verse 8, he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is always looking for some way to devour, to crumble, to steal, kill, and destroy. The good news is Jesus has won the war. When Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead, he won the war. But even though the peace treaty has been signed, there's still these battles lingering and going on. You know, like after many wars, yes, you say the official end date was here, but sometimes word doesn't spread. And so there's still a battle or two going on. And that's what's happening in our world. Jesus has won, but there are these battles. Now, I have no idea if Satan knows he's already lost. And so he's just trying to drag down as many people as he possibly can. Or maybe he's so deluded and fooled to thinking he can still win. And so he's out there actively trying to win a war that he's already lost. And so if he can worm his way in 
into a marriage, into a relationship, into a church, and bring division, you bet he'll do it. That's where he thrives. That's what he loves. And a me-centered approach opens it up to him. If you want to shut the door on him, you've got to go Jesus-centered. And, and that's what uh, I think Peter's saying there in verse 9. He says to resist him, firm in your faith. Now, do not try to resist Satan on your own. Right? It, Adam and Eve tried that and failed at it miserably. The only person who's ever defeated Satan is Jesus. Jesus did it. So the way you resist him is just through the name of Jesus. Your identity is in Christ. When you're Jesus-centered, now you can resist him because now your faith is firm in Christ because it's actually Christ who defeats him, not you. So you can resist him through the gospel. And as you resist him, you're being Jesus-centered, and that begins to bring that unity. Uh, Peter's uh, audience, what he was writing to, when something would happen within the church that kind of bothered them, they couldn't do the American thing. You know, like, if, if you begin to really hate something about your church, you can just get up and, like, go visit somewhere else. I mean, just here in Waverly alone, I think we have, what, 14, 15, maybe 16 churches. And so, yeah, you could go visit. And, you know, Cedar Falls isn't that far away. So you could just up and take off and go somewhere else. <laughs> Peter's day and age, there was one church per community. Like, there was just the Jesus church. There weren't the Baptists and the Methodists and the Presbyterians and all that. No, it was, like, which church do you go to? The only one? You know, like, I go to the Jesus church. So what do you do when someone ticks you off? When, when, when someone's just bothering you? You humble yourself. But even if they are being a jerk and you feel the anxiety rising up in you, notice verse 7. He says to cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's a very famous verse. It's the type of verse that we would slap on a uh, mug or, or we'd put up on Instagram with a nice pretty picture behind it. You know, and, and I'll be honest, as I was working on this message this week and I came to that verse, I've got a friend right now who's going through a really difficult time in his job. It, it's really stressful. It, he is anxious. And so I paused and I prayed for him, just praying that God would help him to cast his anxieties on him because I know how much God cares for him. But you know what? The context around this isn't just about anxiety in general. I don't think it's wrong or evil or bad to apply this verse to that. But look at the context. The context is about humility. And when you humble yourself before some others, every once in a while, they're going to do something that you don't like. If you're married, you know what I mean. And guys, you buy them flowers and you're out of the doghouse. If you humble yourself it's going to bring suffering. It's going to be difficult because there will be times when someone will do something that you don't like, but yet you are committed to putting them first. What do you do? You cast your anxiety onto God. And then notice, as you cast your anxiety onto him, as you suffer through this, notice verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I believe that inside every Jesus follower 
is this desire to have the image of Jesus restored within them. I think that inside every Jesus follower is this deep desire to just have their faith confirmed. We believe in an invisible God. And sometimes there are these doubts that will sneak in. Isn't it so wonderful when you see evidence of God's work and God's hand and God's presence and it just confirms your faith? I think inside every Jesus follower is this desire to have your faith strengthened. To, to just have this faith that's so solid that no matter what comes against us, no matter what we suffer, we're strong. And I think inside every Jesus follower is this idea that our faith is just so solid that we are absolutely established. That we are set on the rock of Christ so that no matter what floods, what earthquakes come, we can rest secure in our identity in Jesus. But to get there, it takes suffering. It takes humility. It's going low in order to see that high point. I wish I could claim Grandma and Grandpa Rice as my Grandma and Grandpa because they were so cool. They're Leanne's maternal grandparents. And as soon as I met them, they just immediately like adopted me. I mean, I was just a boyfriend to this girl. And yet, they just made me feel part of the family. They were so incredibly generous. I watched them just feed tons of people. Grandma was always producing food. And even after you were full, she was still shoveling more onto your plate because this is her way to care for you. I watched them use their lakeside home. It was a small home, a simple home. Grandpa designed it himself, and yet they used it to invite college students out for a Bible study. I I saw them attend their church, and and they didn't go to the traditional church. They went to the contemporary service because they wanted to be around these younger people and have their faith encouraged and to be older and be around these younger people and let them know that following Jesus isn't just to be with people your own age. But I think one of the things that impressed me most about Grandma and Grandpa was Grandpa was off the smarts, off the chart smart. It, when he was out of college, he worked on the Manhattan Project. And then he got a job at McDonnell Douglas as an engineer designing stuff for airplanes. Uh, the guy was smart. If you sat down with him, he'd love to like talk about, I think it was like Pascal's Triangle or different mathematical things. You know, he'd just talk about things, they just fly over my head, you know, and I'd try to honor him and pretend I knew what, I, what he was saying. He was just smart, and he loved Jesus. He'd followed Jesus most all of his life. He probably could have walked into a seminary and taught any number of classes. But you know what his main ministry was in his church? Sixth grade boys Sunday school. He went in and taught year after year after year after year a bunch of smelly sixth grade boys about Jesus. And when grandpa passed away, man after man after man stood up at that microphone and began to talk about Grandpa Rice. Grandpa went low. And you could see through the legacy that he left in his family, in his marriage, and even in these sixth grade boys who are now 40, 50, 60 year old men. And they are following Jesus because this guy went low. He humbled himself and put others first. I want to see my church family do that. It doesn't matter how talented you are or untalented you are. All of us can follow Jesus. All of us can go low and humble ourselves and put others first. And when we do, God will do something amazing. Just look at verse 6 to finish. He says that humble yourselves therefore 
And notice, when you humble yourself under others, you really, he's saying, therefore, it's under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. The way up is to go down. It's counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense. The world kind of shakes its head at you, like, what are you doing? And yet, as you do it, the image of Christ will be restored within you. Your faith will be confirmed. Your faith will be strengthened, and you will be established. And when you're established, you're at the top. You are now like Jesus. You are loving like Jesus loved and living like Jesus lived. And the view is amazing. The way to get there is to go low. So Father, I pray that you'd help each of us in this room to go low, to humble ourselves first before you. And by humbling ourselves before you, we're in a sense humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Lord, I believe that as as you have helped many in this room find you, you're calling them to follow you. And, And a part of their following you is to be like Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead he lowered himself, taking on the form of a slave and even submitting himself to death on a cross. And because of his humility, you exalted him to the highest place that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, every, knee, every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you call us to that same path to show the same humility, that we would have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. But God, it's hard. We came out of the womb thinking about ourselves. We wake up in the morning thinking about ourselves. We spend all day with ourselves. We, are, we hear our thoughts. We hear our words. We can't get away from us. But you're not asking us to get away from us. You're just asking us to come to you so that you can mold and shape us into who you see us to be. So God, would you do this tremendous work? I pray for anyone in this room right now that does not have their faith settled into Jesus. They've got questions. They're doubting. They're searching. And yet right now, they are sensing your Holy Spirit saying, I love you. Follow me. And I want to see them begin this journey so that you can work deeply in them, helping them to go low. Because as they do, they will be a blessing to others, loving like Jesus loved and living like Jesus lived. Lord, our world is in chaos right now, especially here in America, post-election. There are a lot of people excited. There are a lot of people who are scared. We have never been more divided as a country. What this world needs is a bunch of people who will go out and love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived And here we are, we're saying, use us, send us. We'll be the ones to take your gospel, take your love, to go and be a blessing. Let us go and care for people. So God, we ask that you do this deep work in us so that you can then do a great work through us. So Father, empower us, help us to go low, knowing that when we do, you will take us high. It's in Jesus' name we ask for this. Amen.